You're listening to the Topco Business Unusual Podcast. Now, the Business Unusual Podcast. Learn from the greatest minds in business today. Interviews hosted by Ralph Fletcher. Learn how to improve business, get tips from industry leaders, and be motivated by real-life experience. Topco. Business Unusual. So welcome to the, the Topco Business Unusual podcast. Today, I'm joined by Anna Collard. Anna Collard is the founder. Uh, she's the managing director of um, No No uh, No Before. So she she was obviously the founder as well before that of Popcorn. So I think it's really amazing to meet someone who's not just an award-winning woman, but an entrepreneur and a mother. Um, it's almost like three jobs in one, right? So welcome to the Business Unusual podcast, Anna. Thanks so much for having me, Ralph. It's good to be here. I, l- I love the view behind you. Kind of uh, makes me feel like we're not working. Yeah. <laughs> nice view of Table Mountain. Obviously, you're in Cape Town. Yes, yeah. So I think that's one of the things that we realized when we when we did Africa Tech Week, and, and you were one of the recipients of, of Businesswoman in Africa Tech. And, yes. And, and I kind of, I, I thought I've had, had the idea that... South Africa is is endeared with these these great places to live, and this is a great amount of talent. And it really is from a from a tech perspective the ideal location to reside. And and, and I thought I, like Africa Tech would be a great vehicle to celebrate not just the skills in South Africa, the the the, the companies, but also the tourism aspect, the lifestyle. I mean, how how do you find that? You 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 obviously from Germany. Yes, and I, I mean, I agree with you. I think Cape Town is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, and it's because of that that it attracts a lot of, I guess, creative minds or people that innovate because they they just sort of strive on the beauty of the scenery and the nature. And then there's also a lot of really clever and, um, I suppose, you know, um, cool startups and tech and creative agencies and companies in Cape Town itself. So you get access to really smart, bright people. There's great universities around. So yeah. overall, I, I I don't know if there is such a thing. There probably is. But um, like the top 10 cities to start a business in, I'd say Cape Town should definitely be on it. I agree. <laughs> I think what, what I saw, I saw a lot of people leaving school or university and really looking at challenges in South Africa and not looking at the opportunities. And there was this like talent drain going to the rest of Europe or America. And I suppose Elon Musk is probably the most relevant one out of everybody. But but then there's you that's come, and it's not just you, there's so many Europeans and Americans, international people are seeing those opportunities in South Africa and Cape Town. What, what, how did you, how did you come up? How did you come about coming to Cape Town? It was more, uh, well, accidentally, actually, I, I studied in, in Germany, in Munich, and um, I actually did, I wasn't in tech, I did an international uh, BA or sort of economics um, degree, and part of our our studies, you know, we had to do internships abroad, and I have an uncle in South Africa, so I was sort of, okay, well, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> 
uh, I'll go there and worked in his company for, I think it was six weeks or eight weeks. And I really fell in love with the country. I, I enjoyed it. And then um, when I finished studying, I wanted to come and stay for a year. And that year became nearly three years. And I joined a company called Dimension Data. They are, uh, I guess, South Africa's biggest IT reseller or network integrator. And and that's where my whole career in the security space started. So um, through Dimension Data, I've, I've worked both in back in Europe and then um, I met a nice South African man, I guess. And that was I knew ultimately you the say reason. That, <laughs> <laughs> that kept you here. Why that I ended up. <laughs> Um, yeah, so in 2008, I came back to Cape Town for good, and I haven't regretted it once. So I love living here, I love you. working here. And I also believe that if I had the same idea in in Germany, it may have been more difficult to sure. go through with it. You know, there's a lot more red tape and bureaucracy and naysayers, people that just um, tell you, no, nah, you can't do that, and there's too much risk, whereas I find generally the attitude in South Africa is really motivating and positive, and if I think back when I, I started the business, it, it, was, it wasn't it was meant to be a business, it was more of a, an idea, and I pitched it to one of my customers, Alls Mutual at the time, and they were just so cool about it, and they said, no, Anna, you have to do this, and you know, do it this way, not that way. And they really gave me great insight and really enabled me to, you know, like get this thing going. And um, yeah, it, it's through the South African optimism and can-do mm. attitude, I guess that, um, yeah, things can actually, well, Definitely. be born in a way that sure. may be more difficult in, in Europe, or specifically yeah. Germany. For sure, and 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 I and I read that you did that BA, but I was like, but you focused on on security, and I'm like, what? Why would a nice girl from Germany be focused on cybersecurity for? So it was, it was something that early on you had this. I don't know what was the interest or what what what. Yeah. On... Again, it was more coincidence. So. In, in Germany, when you go to university, most students have a side job, like you wait, you know, you waiter or I was a waitress, but then you can also start working in companies like Siemens, just, and I went there purely because they pay better than your waitressing job. And you can start like a, it's called a Siemens student program where you work for 20 hours a week and you get exposed to different areas and you can still study, you know, and finish your studies. And they, um, they basically told me, okay, there's three um, subjects that you can write your thesis in, and one of them was security, but this was 2001. So it wasn't really a, a big sort of hot topic back in the day, but it sounded more exciting than, I think they had CRM and mobility or something. <laughs> Those were the other to topics. So I just chose it because I thought, oh, okay, this sounds cool. And that's how I got into it. It was literally uh, through my side job and... Yeah, and then um, actually the more you, when you start reading up on cybersecurity or information security, that's what it was called back in the day, um, yeah. and you're interested in learning, then it's such a fascinating field because, I mean, I've been in it now for nearly 20 years. Well, 20 years, yes. If you, <laughs> um, and you can never stop learning. You know, there's it covers so many aspects. Like you can go into the, the deep technical sort of, I don't know, pen penetration testing and the ethical hacking side or into application security, into networking, into the cloud 
but you can also go completely different in the sort of human psychology side. Um, you know, there's so many different avenues to grow into the security field. And um, yeah, it, it's if you if you do enjoy learning, and that's something I, I definitely do, and new yeah. things, then it's a, a super field to be in and grow. For sure. And then I saw that um, it was quite interesting. You you loved drawing when you were younger. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then, and then it sort of came out in your in your entrepreneurial life. Yeah. Obviously, that's like a, a passion. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's right. And I always I always drew um, little cartoons even in school. You know, I made these little comic strips and. I actually wanted to study art, not economics, but my dad was the one who said, nah, there's no money in it, like do something more sensible. And um, and then I sort of, I, I accidentally fell into the, the security space, but having the economics background helped obviously as well in terms of, a, you know, um, I don't know, just business common sense, I guess. And then, yeah. um, so when 2011, <clears throat> we went on honeymoon yeah. And I uh, just, um, while my husband was, was in the, you know, sailing, uh, we, we went to um, te- uh, Tanzania, to Zanzibar. Um, yeah. I was on the, okay. on the beach and just drew these little characters and the little adventures that they had in, in the cybersecurity space. Just like sort of more for fun, but also because I thought I would have, this was my dream before, is to take cybersecurity and, and explain it to non-IT and non-technical <clears throat> people in like a fun way using a, a cartoon story. And this was literally, so my honeymoon little self-drawn storyboard is what I showed to Old Mutual. And then we obviously got professional animators involved and, and did it um, properly. But that's sort of how I could combine the drawing and the, the story creation and the arts with the stuff that I learned in the security space. and yeah create the i suppose the the business it's it's so funny because actually i i whenever i podcast with people they often have a dream when they're younger that normally when they go to university they pivot so they actually change they see an opportunity and they change and you sort of did that but then it's it's unusual where people can pivot from their career and bring in their passion as well into an entrepreneurial thing but you've definitely done that as well which is also really interesting sort of observation where you've got your skill. It's like the Igashi, I don't know if you've heard of that. It's where you bring your no. your passion and your skill or what you're good at and what you're good at making money and how you can impact the world. Yes. Uh, it's like a Japanese purpose-driven way of living. Igashi, you must read the book. It's it, it, and it, will, it, will, it will sit with you because it will be like, wow, actually I'm, I'm, I'm you know, doing a lot of different things that's um, supplementing my soul. But, I mean, you spoke about your dad. How, how influential were your parents, like, coming to South Africa? And <laughs> um, Yeah, I, th- I think quite, well, he's, you know, obviously he's not happy that I'm so far away, especially now with this whole um, COVID restrictions. But, you know, he, when, um, I don't know, in the, in the end 70s, he took my brother. We weren't um, born yet, but my older brother was, I think, three or four, and he went off with my mom and my brother on a like nearly three year trip on a sailing boat around the world. So he is quite an adventurer and he always told us, mm-hmm. go out there, you know, see the world. Um, and he, I, he always encouraged me. He was never, he never once said, Oh, you know, be careful. I mean, obviously be careful, but 
he was never <clears throat> he never doubted that I wouldn't be able to you know look after myself or yeah. you know make it um, I mean, so, you, you, you've received some of the top awards not just in South Africa but internationally for a woman in in cybersecurity which is pretty amazing and I'm, I'm guessing I don't know but I'm guessing and I'm thinking there's not too many women in cybersecurity, certainly not in South Africa. We know there's a shortage, right? I think that's one of the things you're talking around. How do we develop yeah. talent? How do we develop skills? How do we get more people involved? What do you see that needs to either happen in Africa to get more women into tech? What are you seeing that you – is it – do you think it's your family, the culture of your dad having that travel and going away? So is it, do you think that your dad's sort of, your family sort of impact, impacted on you or, or do you think it was more of the social or cultural things that sort of helped you? And, and do you see any differences in South Africa? I think, so I think the points that you raised, they're, they're really relevant. So globally, um, only 20% of the, you know, people working in security are women. In Africa, it's only 9%. And in senior management position, we only have 1% of females. Um, I don't think it's in particular, like there's nobody out there that says, oh, I don't want to have any woman working in, in the space. So it's not a conscious um, like decision anyway, but it's, it's actually quite a, we just released a, a research paper called Tomorrow Subaherence that looks at exactly that and um, why it's so important to, particularly in Africa, to attract the girls to join the tech industries or the cybersecurity um, space and also to make it more attractive because what happens, and it actually happens at a very young age, is yeah. that girls get socialized. Um, really, like this whole bias system happens without any malicious intent. Like you can just walk into a toy store and you can see that the science like cool stuff is in the blue boys section and then and i happen to have a girl and a boy as so i know and then do you think you've implemented that bias do you, do you uh, think well, you've, you've been you've been part of the the problem i think we all are yes but and it's oh. not it's it's men and women same thing like we, we teach our yeah. girls from young age okay you need to be interested in unicorns and Barbies and makeup and the boys can play with the cool stuff and and not that there's anything wrong with Barbies and, and pink is a nice color you know don't get me wrong but I think we need to really do more to encourage the girls to also get their interest into the the technical side of things make the tech more pink maybe or more girls friendly um what was really interesting, the feedback we got from the survey that we did, and it was a survey across 445 teachers across Africa, where we asked them, we said, what can we do to attract more girls into the cyberspace or cyber tech space? And they, the, the sort of majority of the, the people said, we need to show them more role models, because that's the other thing is that, um, and I guess that's where initiatives like your top woman um, you know, events and the awards are really helpful because they actually provide a platform for women in tech to showcase, hey, you can still have your nails done and look pretty and be a mom and be successful in the tech industry. You don't have to be a super male kind of character. Um, no. it, you know, like, in fact, it's actually useful to bring your femininity into it and, and work it. We are different. You know, there's no question about it. Like men and women are different and we both have our strengths and weaknesses, but there's no reason why, you know, we couldn't be 
just as successful as as the guys in the in the tech industry. And um, yeah, and I think specifically in in Africa, where you know there's a lot of talk about moving to the fourth industrial revolution and being more sort of digitized, we're leaving the girls and the women behind unless we get them on board. And it's really dangerous because already there's like a gender imbalance, you know, in terms of pay and whatnot, and all these traditional jobs that apparently will be replaced by robots, are, you know, are, are more sort of traditionally held by women, call center, administrative jobs. So where do we leave them unless we get them equipped to, you know, compete in the in the tech space? But so I'm listen, quite, yeah. If I listen to you and your, your introduction with Siemens, I'm sort of thinking who's who's leading the light do you see in driving diversity in organizations in South Africa or Africa? Are, are there organizations that you're seeing that uh, are doing some interesting things? Um, I think that because it is, I don't know if it's just been last year with this whole digitization and this is like a very subjective view. Like I received these awards last year as well, which is obviously amazing. But for some reasons, something happened last year that I see a lot more recognition of female and women and technology. And there's a lot of these kind of events that are happening with sometimes they're also not necessarily, you know, there is like a, some women actually said, I don't want to be recognized just for being a woman. I want to be recognized for having the skills, but they are actually really necessary because um, in the, at the moment, you know, if you, if you're one out of 20, it's very difficult for you to compete and you know to to showcase what you what you can unless somebody actually puts the the sort of the light on you and says well you are a successful woman so sorry but to go back to your questions in terms of so i i just see generally most of the bigger organizations are jumping on the bandwagon it seems to be um kind of hip in, at the moment, you know? So that's a good thing, I guess. And there's- Or, or they've woken up to the impact that women can bring yeah. economically and, and um, innovation-wise to their organizations. And I think like we saw a big impact from, if, a, if there's a woman on a board of an international company and they can measure the impact in terms of the ROI, it's massive. I mean, a company yes. without a woman on the board, their return on investment for shareholders like, eight percent and with a woman on the board it's almost 11 percent. so and that's been yeah. generic that's just like that's not even looking at the type of companies so i think the, the data is showing diversity has a massive There's impact on companies performance yeah across the board so i can see why companies are doing i'm just interested to see you know i know for instance like the microsoft and those sorts of organizations the standard banks are really driving an agenda for gender empowerment. Um, But I was just wondering if you're seeing any special cases. Also just, I mean, I I can just see it everywhere. I can't, I mean, obviously at Noble 4, they're also quite um, like strong believers and and, uh, supporters of it. Um, And yeah, exactly. Standard Bank, they have that uh, top woman award as well, I think. Dimension Data does something. So they're all, I think they're all, oh, that's you. So yeah, I, I guess it's 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 more pervasive. Like I see it all over social media. Um, and what's also nice is sort of um, what I like about it, and this is maybe the the positive side effect of COVID, is that 
across Africa, you know, like it's no longer just South Africa or no. one particular country, but we're having these pan-African um, get-togethers. And, you know, like through the, there was a top 50 African woman in Saba. I've met such incredible other ladies, like real, well, I call them Saba heroines, you know, of, on the African continent. And those are the goals that we actually decided, you know, as part of that initiative. So we've done the survey. We know that the teachers are looking for role models. We also know that there is a problem with a lot of the African schools, like the kids actually don't have internet at home. So we have to equip the teachers to show the the content in the classroom. So we we on a mission to record some of these African um, security or, or tech um, trailblazers and then create these little mini video clips that can be shown in the schools so that the the girls in the classroom can see hey this is like a cool career choice i've never thought about and look at this lady from whatever uganda and how well she incorporates her culture her femininity all of these things and it and can be successful in, in tech it's so funny i saw a um as part of the old mutual awards program that looks at different uh, foundations that they invest in and they there was a lot of research and data but one of the I think it was one of the schools in Kenya um, mm-hmm. they were teaching science and then technology and maths and actually because they taught it in a certain way the the girls were not getting like 50s or 60s but averaging like 80s and 90s so oh, wow. I think when you give the women um, a chance and you're not doing those biases they really f- uh, flourish so that was a, a very interesting opportunity um, but I mean, j- just to pivot slightly, you know, you founded this company, Popcorn. You then were growing it. You your your passion was coming alive. I mean, you were doing training. Popcorn was a training Popcorn company training. Yeah. around cybersecurity, right? So I mean, you know, obviously your passion is is uh, informing people cybersecurity and then training people on, on what else. What did you see when you were doing the training? Because obviously you sold the business, but I mean, as you were doing it, did you see an impact from the training you were doing? Yeah, so the area that we, we specialize in is, is awareness training. So it's not necessarily a deep, hardcore three weeks course. It's more awareness. So when we talk about awareness, it's like little two to three minutes clips that tell you, um, you know, how to not fall for phishing emails, for example, or how to come up with a better password and those kind of things. And it's really important that companies are doing that because um, depending on which, again, research study you uh, reference, it's between 30 and 90% of the cases when there's a data breach that the human element um, or a sort of a phishing attack or social engineering attack that like the human hacking element um, is to blame. So it really is one of the biggest issues that big corporations are sort of tackling with. And one way to improve that is to, and again, it's it's scientifically proven that you can, is by doing continuous awareness and sort of keeping people a, educated or made aware of what the problem is, but then also showing them what they can do to obviously protect themselves and in fact there was just a study released the other day where they showed like there's this term called credential theft so which means like if somebody tries to they send you a phishing email and then you fall for it and they do that in order to steal your username and password they do that to get into your email account or your work account that's called credential theft and if you have a positive security culture or an 
an environment where you continuously sort of create awareness for your your people, the people are 51 times less likely to fall for these credential theft attacks than if you haven't done that. So it really is, um, if you, you do it, it, it makes a huge difference. And you, we call it the human firewall. You're building a human firewall and wow. protect against social engineering. Yeah. It's funny how these small things can make such a big impact, right, to a big problem that could have been easily solved. So, I mean, I'm really intrigued. I want to talk about the cybersecurity because I've, you know, I've got young boys who are good with their cell phones. And so <laughs> I can honestly say I've been hacked. But um, but before that, I mean, I was also intrigued. You, you spoke about you, you were, you know, at a moment where you were, you were handshake agreement with a venture capital company to grow the business. And you came to that point where, ah, oh, you know, do I do it? And then you were approached by no before. And it was, it was, it must have been a hard, I don't know, was it a hard decision? Sort of how did you, how did you make that decision? Yeah, it was, a, it, it was quite a, it was very much out of the blue. So I didn't expect it. I wasn't out there to get acquired. And it's exactly like it was a private equity um, investor who we've, we've already shook hands and said, okay, let's, let's scale it. Um, because I was at that point, you know, it was completely bootstrapped. I financed everything my, myself um, and sort of did everything myself. So I was like at that point of burnout unless I get more people in. Um, but I didn't have the funds. So I had, I had something had to change. And then, um, <clears throat> yeah, I got that, that call from no before initially they wanted to license our content and I kind of, I prepared for the, the phone call because I, I discussed it with my husband and we said, well, why would I license my IP to one of our competitors that, you know, that doesn't make sense. So I, I actually wanted to say, well, thanks, but no thanks. And in that phone call, they kind of dropped the bomb and they said, well, what if we just acquire you completely and you become part of us? And um, at that point, you know, I, it was sort of what, you know, um, I didn't expect that, but it is, a once in a lifetime opportunity in a way. So I was, I was excited about it. I spoke to the, that um, potential investor. He was very nice about it. He helped me. He, he provided me with um, access to really good negotiators that helped, you know, do the deal because, it's a good deal. It, yeah, because I, you know, I've never done a, a, something like that before. So I was completely green behind the ears. I had no idea what no. the due diligence entails and the contracting and all of that. So there was a huge help to get someone to. Yeah. So um, I think, I think for a lot of the audience listening, it's, it's like they, many of them are in corporate or have corporate jobs or are startups who are looking to sell or scale. And so it's quite interesting. You almost, I, I was like drawing it out in, on a piece of paper, but you, you, you've gone from corporate to running your own business to selling to getting back into corporate in a way. Um, yeah. You've got some interesting decisions to make in the next couple of weeks. But, but I mean, how was that transition, that, that moment? And, and what advice do you have for people who are taking on that journey? Because I've heard you say before, be brave. If you're in corporate, go and follow your dream. And so you, you sort of did that. Uh, what, are, what are the lessons that you learned from that, that cycle? Um, so I think that, and this was actually an advice I got from some consultant at like a big project before. And he said, you know, any experience or project you're on in life, there's, there's three element, elements. There's how much money do you get? How much do you learn? And then how much, um, what's the politically correct word? Like how much 
can you take, you know? Can you can you write, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, I, like going through an acquisition, especially by an American company, it, it, it's tough. And, um, I mean, that year, I, I think, and I also had a small baby. I mean, I think Josie was not even a year old. And um, that was really hard. Like, you know, you work – Uh, 14, 15 hour days and try to make it all happening and everything changes. Like they initially they will say, oh, we we buy you, but you can um, continue running as you were and nothing will change. But the reality is if they buy you, everything changes. And we were like a lifestyle business. We had no offices. Everything was remote, like, you know, to a corporate that is very much, yeah, you be in the office and yeah, the rules and the hundred pages of policies and <laughs> how did you cope um, with that how did you because a, a lot of people probably will go through that because there's that you know earn out right I mean what did you yeah. what did you what would you do differently or is it too 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 soon to speak or I, I think that I wouldn't actually I wouldn't change it 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 was a it was such a great learning it, there was a lot of learning that I, I got through it because also we were the first acquisition that they did um, outside the USA, I think. So they also weren't that prepared. So I had to really make up stuff as I went along. So what I find helps a lot is I need to visualize stuff. So I created this, this massive kind of mind mapping board where I said, okay, what are my major um, priorities? It's sales and it's creating content. So those are the top priorities I had to focus on because that's also what the earnout agreement obviously is based on. And then there were all the other sections, like we have to integrate with legal, we have to change find the financial stuff, we have to do all the other departments that need to now integrate. And obviously you have to track it, but you can sort of prioritize it. And then I created this like mind map or heat map of all these, I think there were 12 areas that that as a business you need to integrate with. And I just tracked it like a like a robot system and focused on the important bits. And um, because I find it helps me when I put stuff down on paper, especially if I see it visually, then it's out of your, if you keep it in your brain and you you can't stop thinking about it. But once you have it somewhere outside of it, then it helps you to prioritize and to say, okay, I know that finance has sending me a hundred requests, but that can wait now because they're third on the list, you know? So you sort of... um, I find it helps to be structured and, and visualize big elements like that. And what was your inspiration for this priority? Was it university? Was it your father? Was it a book that getting things done or? Yes. I, I mean, I, yeah, I love reading. I love learning things. So I've read, I mean, that particular one, I, I probably was an amalgamation of a lot of books that I read before. I read one great book before, obviously the Peter Drucker one, the management one is really good, but then there was yeah. one, uh, called the Productivity Ninja. Um, yeah. One of the best uh, sort of advice I got from there is to have an inbox zero system. So every night you clear off your inbox so there's nothing left. Um, and the system that is described in there works really well with, with uh, we, we use Google Mail. So it's really nice to have like a clean we also do. inbox. <laughs> is it? Yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, it's, I don't know how you are, but it stresses me out if I, if I have like hundreds of things there. I'm, and, I'm the um, opposite of you. So other people do that for me, but yeah. <laughs> so um, yeah, and then just I think generally 
yeah, the, the second brain thing, I, I can't remember where I read that, but it makes a lot of sense that, that we need outside help. We can't process everything in our brains, otherwise we go mad. So we have to put stuff on paper and then also go to bed sometimes knowing that, no, it's not done and I haven't solved it, but my second brain keeps track of it. So I don't have to think about it right now. <clears throat> sure. So, you know, all good stuff. So, I mean, just going on to cybersecurity, I mean, it's a big challenge at the moment. And I suppose in, in a way I've had many run-ins and if I think about um, wherever I've been caught through cybersecurity, it's always when a deal is too good to be true. That's saying, if it's too good to be true, don't yeah. do it. And um, my brother and I have got Mustangs and we really wanted this 1967 Mustang fastback. So we're at a conference and we're like, hey, just, just pay the guy the money. Like we hadn't even seen the car. And, oh, no. yeah. and it went down a, a, an empty pit. So that was, that was probably one of my first uh, scenarios. And then, and then I read an article. It was, I don't know if it was intuitive. Or I don't know how this happened. And I read this article and it said, the likelihood of someone else having your fingerprint is one in like a million whatever. So I was like, okay, that's, that's wow. And then that, later that night I got home and my son got hold of my iPhone and it opened up. He touched the thing and it opened up. And I was like, oh, my, Haiti, did you see that? Did you know only one in like a million of people have got the same fingerprint? Yeah, I think it was like seven or eight or maybe younger. And then his brothers came up to me and said, no, Dad. He, he, saw your, he, he saw you put your password in and he put his fingerprint in. <laughs> yes. No, they're, they're clever. Huh? I mean, they're probably, yeah. <laughs> they're too clever. So, so it is, I mean, those are, these are like obvious cyber issues. I mean, do, do you see it affecting more and more individuals and companies or is it more companies being affected? No, everyone. And especially last year during the pandemic. So there were a lot of reports with, oh, there's so many new cyber attacks and they're not necessarily new at all. They're using the same, same old, same old techniques of exactly too good to be true, um, using fear, any sort of emotion that what happens is it triggers our fear center or the amygdala and then you don't think critically, you know, like you really want that car, it's such a good price. And then your your frontal lobe is sort of, high, you know, it's actually, it's called amygdala hijacking. So you don't think critically anymore. And that's when you, unfortunately, at your most vulnerable because that's how they hook you. And they can do that through obviously things like, you know, greed or fear, um, authority, anything that's emotional. And um, what's happened last year is that, you know, with a lot of us having to now being forced to work from home and lockdown, the, the sort of uncertainty of, well, how is life going to be? Will I keep my job? That whole COVID pandemic in itself, you know, it, it caused this collective anxiety level and we're all tapping into it, even the most chill people can't deny that there is this thing happening that we just, we all feel it. And unfortunately, when you are more distracted, you are more anxious or stressed, we are also more likely to revert to what's called heuristic thinking mode. So we're no longer thinking critically. And that's all that happened. And the, the cyber criminals sending out really, if you look at it slowly and with sort of common sense, you think, ah, oh, who would fall for that? But because we don't do that, we are stressed out, we're getting 100,000 Zoom invites a day, and then there's the one that we don't look at properly, we click on it, and 
you know, that's all it takes. So one click and then you download the malicious software or you um, hand over your credentials, your username and password to the, the wrong or the criminal because it just looked the same and you didn't think critically in the moment. And that's um, resulted in a five-fold increase of cyber um, sort of data breaches from like 2019 to 2020. So not, can, not necessarily. Sorry? I was thinking, what can companies or individuals do? I mean, is there like a, a couple of steps or is there things that you suggest? Like, I don't know what you do. Um, yes. So what, it, it really... Uh, it, it really is sort of being aware of the fact how our brains work. So anything that comes in, whether it's on WhatsApp, whether it's on social media, the same, you know, with misinformation and fake news, it uses the same concepts. Like emotional content gets shared seven times more, you know. Format. Yeah, so so whatever you see, take a breather. It only takes five seconds for our sort of emotions to kind of calm down and then you think of think you look at it with a more critical or more sort of um i guess like yeah critically thinking what, mind what and then <clears throat> and don't trust anyone don't trust anything unfortunately um try also uh, sort of the information about you in the public domain especially personal information keep that as little as possible because they are you know like you, you said you did some research which is that's obviously all legitimate but the cyber criminals do that too because it's so much easier if I if I know stuff about you, I can send you things that make you much more likely to fall for it. Now I know that you like Mustangs, you know. Okay, so, yeah, you know. <laughs> no, but exactly. So, so, you know, that's what they do. And, and it's automated as well. Like they have these, it's called um, laser phishing, which is using AI technology AI. that will, okay. yeah, that, that will look for information about you in the social media or public domain and then create, targeted customized phishing emails that are that's using information that they found and um, I mean, we were joking earlier and i was like saying i was trying to research you and i was going on facebook and i was kind of giggling to the team is it because she's into cyber security she knows all the challenges and there is some sort of truth to it though right i mean there is you've got a yeah. professional profile on linkedin but your personal profile is is not the same it's so is that something that you think people I mean it would that be one of your advices like yes. be careful with what you're putting out there because a lot of people are using Facebook to start up their businesses a lot of people are using Instagram um, to start up their businesses so so I mean how do you deal with someone who's got that thing where they're using their personal profile to start up their business but also they've got the security risk of people taking advantage on them personally yeah so I, I guess like there's nothing wrong with I mean it's, it's it's also an important, um, especially now, like when people have to do diff things differently and use these tools, and they are great business tools, so let's let's use them. But just be aware of um, that if you use it, like use it as a professional profile. Don't put your birthday or home address or family connections on there because nobody needs to know that. And it's sort of, you know, the same with what we teach our kids. Like unless you're happy to print it on a T-shirt, don't put it on social media because that's how public it is. Even if it's you think it's in your private network, it still is totally public and it will stay there forever. So just be aware of that. Limit what's out there about you. And then I guess the, so that that brings me to the sort of third point that we always say, and you mentioned it as well, is your username and password, like your 
digital identity as such, whether that's your Facebook account or your email account or whatever work account, whatever it is, those are your, that makes up who you are and that's what they're after. So a lot of people, they still ask me, they say, Anna, I don't care if somebody hacks my email account, but what they do with that is if think about how many other accounts you can sort of reset your passwords on using your email account. Think about all the contacts you have on there or your social media account. You know, they, they use that to then spread their malware or their scams via your profile because I'm more likely to trust if it comes from you. So it's really important to keep your username and password safe. And the way you do that is um, through the means of a, a password manager. Like it's impossible to teach people how to come up with long, strong passwords. It really, we, our human brains are not made for this. So use a password manager. It's, it's really simple to set up and it, it creates unique, strong, long passwords. And then also on all the critical accounts like social media, email, finance, et cetera, set up something called multi-factor authentication. And that's, multi-factor. Um, yeah, so that's like, like where you do the cell phone and the email. So it's, it's multiple. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. You can download an app like Google Authenticator, for example, and it generates these one-time passwords, like little tokens that change every 60 seconds. And yeah. if somebody were to steal your username and password, they also have to steal that that yeah. one what if you like me, where your wife does all the banking and purchasing, <laughs> and she uses my boss? She gets me on the phone to the bank and tells them, "Oh, right, this is my husband." I mean, I don't know how they know it's me, um, but I mean, these are real challenges. What we're seeing is women are definitely, in terms of spend, about seventy percent of businesses um, is managed by women. But even a household, a predominant amount of households are by women. So, so how do households now start managing this, this, um, more relevantly? Because it, it, I mean, and the other thing I was going to ask is what we saw in terms of financing, we saw that women actually were better at dealing with investments and money. And there was a funny thing because, uh, um, what they said is that men are more emotional uh, when it comes to investing, which I thought was very funny, because um, women have got that, that that conception of they're more emotional. But what they said is that that men, when things are going down, they exit, where yeah. women are more likely to hold in there for, and so they generally over, I think it was about 300,000 people's investment. Yeah, well, well, they said that they have a better return by over 2%. Women have a better return on investment in investing than men by about 2%. That's so I was wondering, is the same with these scams and this cybersecurity? Are women naturally more secure? Um, yes. So there, there, um, there are lots of, there's a lot of interesting research data that says, it's quite funny because, you know, generally when you look at the research, the men will say that they know more. So if you ask a man and a woman, how would you rate yourself in terms of your cyber skills? the men rate themselves much higher than the women do. So the women are more likely to admit, yeah, you know, I don't know enough. Um, I think, you know, no surprises. Then the, the second thing is that the, the men um, may actually do, they may know more about it, they, un, they understand more about it. So they don't just say they do, they actually do understand more, but they still behave more riskier than the women do. So they may know, geez, it's dangerous to click on this, but I'll click on it anyway. Whereas the women are more sort of risk averse, like they actually better drivers, like in, on the road as well, I think that the women, are, even though, are, oh, okay, let's not go into that debate, but they are, you know, in terms of numbers and data and accidents, it's, it, there are less women who 
cause or have the accidents. And the same is in the cyberspace. Like the... Well, don't, don't worry. It's the same. Yeah. <laughs> look, look, we're running out of time, but I did want to talk about one thing that's really close to your heart and something that you're very passionate about, which is how do we bring more youth into um, cybersecurity, number one, and technology, but also, like, um, I think you... You, you, I don't know, enjoy Elon Musk and see the things he's doing and certainly things around like the X-Pies and celebrating innovation with incentivizing people. And so yeah. you've done a lot of stuff in terms of, I think it's called the GovX competition where you're looking at youth. So, you know, it might be, there might be people who are watching who, who have children or cousins or, or young people who are studying who are into tech like my kids, like they seem to be uh, absorbed by it. But I mean, what what? It's a long competition. It's a couple of weeks. You've still got nominations open, so you really want to get people into applying yeah. to get into this program. There's like great mentors, partners. Like it sounds really, really exciting. Very American, but um, <laughs> <laughs> so so. I mean, what what's what's the outcome that you're looking for from this? Yeah, so we were hoping, um, it actually started last year with a conversation between sort of government and the industry, and we were all just debating why or how the government can do more things to protect the citizens, you know, to uh, from cybercrime, but as well as um, something we haven't touched on, but it's actually a big issue called online gender-based violence. So there's this, the cybercrime issue and then the online gender-based violence, and those are two big challenges that the government by themselves cannot solve and neither can the industry. So we just thought, why don't we reach out to the youth, get students involved, they bring in a fresh kind of point of view, some new ideas. We know we don't have enough security skills. Um, we need more talent and maybe by incentivizing students to get involved in this hackathon or this, this competition, not only may they actually come up with some really cool new ideas and win a prize, but most, more importantly, is can we maybe then inspire them to choose a career in the security space and maybe, you know, just maybe like end up being a security professional and, and sort of using it as a long-term long career path. So, yeah, the, the challenge has kicked off on the 1st of February. We've done lots of webinars that are still available for On Demand that cover different aspects of security and um, sort of the challenges we're trying to solve. Tomorrow there'll be a debate or like a sort of panel discussion. And then what happens is that all the students, if they, so the, the ones that, that register, they can submit ideas and the top 10 ideas then go into a qualifying area where um, they get mentored over a couple of weeks and then ultimately they can win 100,000 Rand. Um, so the top idea is 100,000 Rand and then there's follow-up prizes and mentorships and internship opportunities. It sounds amazing. And I was thinking that um, my, my son uh, is in matric now. And so I'd imagine his school would be the ideal sort of, uh, I'd imagine many schools would be ideally suited to, to get those students to apply there. Yeah, you have to be IT. Like we, it, it, okay, okay. You have to be it's more university, it's more university, university students. Yeah. So it's all the universities, all those sorts of things. But it could be gamers, right? I mean, it could be people who Anyone. maybe have finished school and maybe not at university, but uh, into computers and tech. And okay, that sounds really exciting. Yeah. 
And I love that whole Elon Musk model, which is incentivizing people to innovate uh, and so solving big social and government problems that no organization on them on themselves can solve. It's yes, that's the thing. I know in, in the States they obviously have much bigger budgets, but we, we came up, I think, you know, the sponsors, um a hundred thousand Rand is a cool number still thirty thousand Rand for this the run up. So yes, it's maybe not as big and flashy as the Americans, but the idea is is the same. Like we try and incentivize um bigger groups to come together and solve a challenge that we by ourselves wouldn't be able to do. So Yeah. And I think they also started like they started 30 years ago and they didn't start mm. with what they got now. It was a journey, right? So it's a building yes. thing. Um, but I think what, what we also found from different award programs is it wasn't the prize. It was actually also the journey, the challenge and getting to know yourself. So that's part of it as well, you know. Exactly. Uh, and the networking, you know, so already it's so amazing to see all the companies that are coming on board and say they want to support and be part of it. And how can they, um, you know, play a, a role? So it's really nice to see. And again, that speaks to what we spoke about in the beginning, this Amazing South Africanism, if there's a term for it, that it is, yes, yeah, can it do. <laughs> we want to help, we want to make the world better, you know. Yeah, everybody has a moan now and again, but generally I think South Africans are, are can do people and they just get on with it and try and I, I suppose improve the situation rather than moan about Resilient, it. For sure. I mean it goes to our purpose as well, is is like um, inspiring people to do good business, right? Because yes. That's what it's about. And it was really great speaking to you. Congratulations on all your accolades last year. I know you, you won a couple of awards with us at Africa Tech. Africa Tech's again this year in, when is it, May? So we're going to have to get you involved again. Um, I'd love to, yeah. Thank you. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. Good luck with the, with the competition. We'd love to see how we can help and uh, spread this podcast far and wide for you. Thanks so much, Rolf. Yeah, it was really fun. Thanks so much for having me. Pleasure. Thank you.